Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Daphne, uh, for reading that. Uh, again, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If, uh, if I've not met you, I would love to meet you. Um, if, if you see me run out here uh, right after the sermon, it's not because I don't like you and don't want to be here. Um, I also serve as uh, the chaplain for the Red Sox. It's not me like humble bragging or anything. I just have to go. And so I have to go see, uh, I have to go do uh, teach there after this. So if I run out, it's, again, it's not because I don't like you. I love you very much. Um, and so, um, but again, this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Um, just a couple of uh, things before we get going. Um, our values as a church, um, what really makes us who we are, um, the first is the gospel. It's the good news that we just sang about that uh, because of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have new life in Christ. Um, that this is not just a personal reality, which God does deal with our sins personally, uh, but he also calls us into a new family. Uh, we, so we are united in Christ. We have a unity in Jesus um, as this new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every culture that transcends our individual differences and unites us together with this common hope in Jesus. And so uh, one of our other values is community. Because of that, we have a common unity in Christ, uh, which allows for us to have relationships with one, with one another that are the life-giving relationships relationships that we are created for. And then lastly, mission, because the good news of Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. So we want to spread the, the hope of Christ to the ends of our city, to the ends of our world. Couple of announcements uh, coming up over this next couple over the next month. We have men's and women's retreats with our other city on the hill congregations, and so coming up on May fifteenth, we're having a virtual women's retreat. So be sure to sign up for that. It's only in a couple of weeks, um, and also our virtual men's retreat is going to be Friday, May twenty eighth, and then we're going to also be on uh, Saturday, May 29th, and it's going to end with a kickball game. So I challenge any of you men to a, a kickball game. We have to hold the honor of City on a Hill Forest Hills against all the other City on a Hill congregations. So if any of you have some latent kickball ability you haven't told me about, you're in. So uh, please please come to that. And then we also have some exciting things we're going to be doing this summer. Um, our, our, some of our leaders were just talking this past week about some summer plans. So be on the lookout uh, for those as well. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be wrapping up the Life of David series. Uh, we've kind of had this really unique look. I've never actually taught a, a, a sermon series like this where we look at a particular character and kind of map his journey uh, through the Bible. And so we're going to be wrapping this up over the next couple of weeks. And as we do so, the sh there's going to be kind of a shift that goes from David's kingdom towards David's family from David's kingdom toward his legacy. And I think this is a pretty natural progression for us as we get older, is that we begin to focus less on our careers, less on ourselves, less on our achievements, and our, our mind and our attention begins to look toward our legacy. It begins to look toward the things that outlive us. Some of us are really young, so we can't get really to that place. But there's going to come a point where you begin to think more about your kids than you do about yourself. You're going to begin to think more about their future than your future. And you realize that you probably have less time on this earth than you have spent here. I'm experiencing that even now, right? Our kids' sports schedule, I feel, I feel like, dictates our lives. We have sports every single day of the week right now because we have four kids. And I feel like our lives are, are kind of being bent around our kids' lives. And I think that's increasingly going to happen 
And it's no different with David. As I mentioned at the beginning of the series, David is a really complex person. He wasn't just a successful king. He wasn't just a successful warrior. He was also a dad. He was also a, a husband. And as successful as David was as a warrior and as a king, he was a pretty terrible husband and father. He did not exactly check the boxes when it came to being a good dad. And in fact, his family was a complete train wreck. David had at least eight wives. He uh, had numerous concubines, 10 named sons and one named daughter, and then others who were not named for various reasons. And every single one of them was a complete mess. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you grew up in a home that wasn't exactly a safe place. You grew up in a home that was pretty messed up. You grew up in a broken home. Maybe you've experienced the pain of divorce, but even not, even if you've not experienced these things, no family is perfect. In fact, John Bradshaw, who's a family systems therapist, says that 96% of families in America could be described as dysfunctional. 96%. He said 96% of families are affected by things like addiction, compulsions, an overbearing parent, uh, a parent who's absent or neglectful, and that someone inside of that family is being restricted in their emotional health and growth. I think we can all say we've experienced this in some form or fashion, but like David, there's hope for us too. See, there is gospel grace for broken families. God has grace for broken relationships. And so this morning, we're going to look at some principles, particularly about parenting, from David's mistakes and how they point us towards the story of the hope of, gospel, of the gospel. So this morning, even if you're not a parent, which I understand that a lot of our congregation are not parents yet, that's okay. There's still a word for, he, for you this morning. Many of you may long to be a parent. And even if you're, if you're never going to have kids, you play an incalculable role in the lives of kids and parents in this church. If, you, if you're single in this church, and maybe God's called you to singleness, you are a part of a family. You get to experience what it means to be in a family, hopefully not just here on Sundays, but in a community group over someone's dinner table in real friendship. Or maybe this morning you just need to unpack some of your own family baggage. Maybe you need to unpack your upbringing a little bit. There's grace for all of us here this morning. The first thing we see from the passage is that children belong to the Lord. Children belong to the Lord because everything belongs to the Lord. Kids feel like an extension of us. My kids often feel like they are an extension of who I am. And you, we see this when you go to the ballpark. If you ever go to a ballpark and watch a Little League baseball game, and you see moms and dads losing their minds over an eight-year-old hitting a baseball, they're, they're ex seeing their kids as an extension of themselves. And what often happens, because we believe our kids ultimately belong to us and not to the Lord, is we try to parent in a lot of ways that don't really lead to flourishing. We, plant, we parent in ways where we end up just living vicariously through our kids. It's like, you know, the glory days of high school football are over, so my son better be, I don't have a son, but I, if I had a son, he better be able to throw a football. You know, my, my kids better reflect well on me. Or we want to control their future. We got to put them in the right circumstances 
They gotta be in the right school. We gotta live in the right neighborhood. We gotta have them around the right friends and the right influences and the right experiences or they're not gonna grow up into the vision of who I want them to be. Or we're overly protective. We become that helicopter parent who can't believe that our kid could get a scraped knee or they could ever experience any sort of pain or suffering. And when we do this, when we think that our kids are ultimately under our control, that they ultimately belong to us, and again, some of you may not have kids yet, but you've experienced some of these things as a child, what happens is we make our kids the center of our lives. And when, we, when you make a kid the center of your life, what you end up doing is you end up crushing them. You put a weight that your kids cannot bear And you end up doing the opposite of what you want for them. You want them to thrive. You want them to flourish, but you end up crushing them. Because what we often think of is we think the pressure is on us as parents. It's like, if I don't do this for my kids and I don't do that, they're not going to be successful. But all we end up doing is we end up just shifting the weight onto their shoulders. See, children ultimately belong to the Lord. They are His And we know this because every person, everything, every aspect of creation belongs to God. Everything is under his sovereign care and control. Abraham Kuyper, who is a Dutch theologian, has this famous statement about this. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When Jesus sees our kids, he looks at them and he says, mine. Not yours, but mine. Everything, including our children, belong to God. They're His. Everything is His. This is why when we sin against another person, it's ultimately an offense against God. Matt Harris, who unpacked the the first part of this chapter last week, talked about how David's sin, we see this in Psalm 51, was ultimately against God. It wasn't that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. It wasn't that he didn't sin against Uriah, but because both Bathsheba and Uriah and this unborn child belonged to the Lord, his offense was ultimately against God. Our children are his. They are under his sovereign care. And we have to believe that he knows what's best and he wants what's best for them. We have to trust God with our kids. Parenting reveals this desperate desire to be in control. Anybody, any parent of a toddler ever want their kid to just listen and sit still? I see, yes, I see that hand. Uh, just want them to go to sleep. Don't throw crayons at the dinner table. How'd you get that crayon? Like that is parenting. You want to be in control and it feels like you're in control when they're little, but you're not going to be forever. I have one teenager and almost another teenager. I'm realizing how little control I actually have. They have their own desires. They have their own opinions. They have their own hopes. They have their own likes and they don't always line up with mine. And so I have to trust God because very soon I'm going to be releasing them into the world. And I'm going to be entrusting them to be civil adults, to live hopefully flourishing lives for the glory of God and the good of others. And if I'm honest, it's terrifying because I deep down don't honestly want to trust God with that. It's hard for me to do so, but I functionally, I do believe that their future plans, their health, everything about them are in his hands. And I have to trust that he knows best. And we see this with David and his son here in 2 Samuel 12. 
Last week, Matt unpacked David's repentance, that David repented, deeply repented. He was truly contrite and sorry for what he had done to Bathsheba, what he had done to Uriah. And because we believe the gospel, because we believe that our sins are put on Jesus, David was truly and really forgiven. His sin was really forgiven. His guilt was taken away. But here's the thing about sin. Sin also has consequences. Just because the guilt of our sin has been removed doesn't mean that the earthly consequences don't remain. John Piper says that we must not equate forgiveness with the absence of painful impact. There's a difference between retributive justice and consequences. When, when consequent, the consequences of our sin happen in our lives, it's not God getting even with us. And it may feel that way sometimes. We're like, man, I just, I feel like God is putting judgment on me. But if the gospel is true, then God's justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And that means all the guilt, all the shame of your sin is on Jesus. But that's different than the consequences of your sin. See, the consequences of our, shin, of our sin remind us how evil sin is. It shows us that God doesn't take, take sin lightly, and actually God uses the consequences of our shortcomings and our failures to humble us and sanctify us and help us to love him more. Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 7 say, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you go a little further, verse 10 says that God chastises us or he disciplines us in order to make us holy. Our sinful choices have real consequences. Sometimes our sinful choices have life-altering consequences. And so Nathan, as we saw last week, the prophet of Israel, tells David, because of your sin, God's judgment on you, the consequences of your sin is that your newborn son is going to die. I cannot imagine more horrific news. The terrible loss of losing a kid. And there's no theology that prepares you for this. It's a nearness to God that can get you through this. So how does David respond to this? How does he respond when the unimaginable happens? You look at verse 16. And so David, it says, he sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. David, even though he knew what God said, still prayed. He still fasted. He still longed. It says he's grief stricken, laying on the ground, what we see for seven days, unable to get up, in verse 17, we see that the elders go and they try to pick him up and they can't. He won't eat anything. He is wrecked with anguish. He's crushed to the ground. Have you ever felt that type of anguish or suffering where you just, you can't even get up? I remember when my, my dad passed away about four years ago from lung cancer. And I remember when he passed, the, the sound that my brother let out. And this, this is, there's a lot packed into this, a lot of emotion, a lot of history, a lot of stuff with my dad. I remember my, my brother walks out on the back patio and it can only be described as a howl. It was true and deep anguish from his very soul. I imagine David laying on the ground wrecked with anguish. And this is the beauty of the Bible because the Bible makes room for us to be human. The Bible makes room for us to grieve deeply and at the same time trust God. 
David is, is, he knows God's will, but yet he's pleading with God. Verse 18, he's so grief-stricken that the servants think he's going to hurt himself. They think he's going to hurt himself when they tell him that his son has passed. And in verse 19, David, being very wise, understands and overhears and asks the question, is the child dead? And they confirm that he is. And so as, as this happens, we see something really strange happen with David. David gets up, he cleans himself up, and he goes and eats. And, and this is confusing to us, but it was also confusing to his servants who were like, wait a minute, you're, you're going about just kind of doing normal everyday things, right? You're, you're eating and, you, and, and you're washing yourself and you cleaned yourself up. Like, did you just stop being sad? Like, what happened here? But I want us to listen to David's response in verse 22. He says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. A couple things we notice here. The first is that one, people grieve differently. As a pastor, as I've walked with people through suffering and through death, people grieve differently. Some people grieve right up front. They, they find out about something and they grieve. And then once the person passes, it's almost like there's a relief. Other people bottle it in and hold it in till, till the funeral. And then they, are, they grieve afterwards. I think all of us grieve differently. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. But the second thing we see is that, again, you can have multiple emotions at the same time. You, you can have multiple longings at the same time. It's like the movie Inside Out, which I do believe the, the Pixar, their mission statement is make adults cry uh, because every Pixar movie makes me, makes me cry. And one of those is the movie Inside Out. The movie Inside Out is about the inner workings of, of people and there's this little girl and, and, and up until she's about 11 years old, she has very, very simple emotions. There's, you know, there's happiness, there's sadness, there's disgust and there's fear. Well, part of the plot of the movie is that at one point she starts to have complex emotions. And so all these emotions are represented by these little, these little balls, these little memories. And, and, one, and it's all of a sudden this emotion pops out that's half sad and half happy. See, that, as we grow, as we get older, we have these complex emotions. David at the same time is grieving and trusting. He's angry, but he believes that God has his best. He's heartbroken, but he knows that there's ultimate joy for him in the end. And this is good news for us because God doesn't expect us to clean up our emotions to come to him. He doesn't expect us to work out our desires and our longings and have them in a neat order before we come to him for relief. But he says, come, and he steps right into our mess. And so David recognizes that this child belongs to God. And he trusts that God will do right by this child and he will do good for this child. And he, and he does this in a way where he, he's done all that he can to keep the child alive, but he trusts in the goodness of God. He believes in verse 23 that he will see this child again one day. And this actually gives us hope as parents for those who've lost a child, those who've struggled with, with who, who've had a miscarriage or, or lost an infant. There's been a lot of debate in the history of the church on what happens to infants, but I think that's actually in, what's in line with this passage and what is consistent with the character of God is that, is that God is very gracious to the young. And in fact, we see here that this child died on day seven in Hebrew history and Hebrew custom. They weren't actually brought into the covenant until day eight, but David has confidence that he will spend eternity with his son. 
See, anything can happen to us. Anything can happen to those that we love. Anything that we love can be taken away. And, and the thing is, it doesn't have to be that you did something wrong. You can protect your kids with everything that you have and still lose them. You might make all the right choices and they don't achieve what you want them to achieve. You might be a good parent and they still walk away. We have to trust that God is in control of our kids. And this is particular to the idea of suffering. See, removing God from, from suffering doesn't actually solve the problem of suffering. There are two kinds of people. You're either going to suffer without God or you're going to suffer with God. And if you suffer without God, your suffering is always tied to your joy. So if you're not suffering, you can be joyful. But if you are suffering, you can't be. But here's what Tim Keller says of those who suffer with God. He said, there are people who suffer, who seek to build their trust on God on the basis of his infinite suffering for us on the cross. So God becomes the source of our joy. And when suffering comes into our lives, it drives us into deeper joy. It drives us more into God. See, God knows what he's doing, even when we can't see it. David could not see the other side of this, but we can. In the middle of all this, while he's still mourning, he and Bathsheba have another child named Solomon. Solomon, whom they love, whom the prophet Nathan said, his nickname is going to be Jedidiah. In other words, the beloved of the Lord. And through this line is where Jesus comes from that Jesus comes and makes all things right. See, God is doing more in you and more in your kids than you will ever see, and he's always bringing it about for his glory. Secondly, children need a relationship most with their parents. What they need from you most is relationship. See, this was not David's only problem with his kids. Again, they're all messed up. He is not winning father of the year. And imagine he's a pretty absent dad. Again, he had upwards of 20 kids um, by at least eight different women. He had a demanding job. I imagine he was not the most attentive dad. And we see the fruit that's born from him being a bad father. He had really rebellious kids. And like his type of rebellion is like, you know, not my kids stole the car and wrecked it. It's like Game of Thrones. That's what happened with David's kids. His first son, Amnon, plots and, and sexually assaults, and I'm using that phrase for, for the little ears in the room, he does the worst possible thing he could do to his sister sexually, to his sister Tamar. His third son, Absalom, plots for two years to get revenge for his sister Tamar and kills Amnon. In the process, David rejects Absalom. There's no fatherly embrace. There's no peaceful reconciliation. He kicks him out of the country finally lets him back in, but doesn't let him back into relationships. So now in some form or fashion, David's lost four kids. Absalom feels slighted. He's like, you know what, dad, I'll prove you wrong. I'll show you. Attempts a military coup, tries to murder David. And though the relationship is strained, David says, do not kill him. Yet his generals murder Absalom in brutal fashion. And David makes one of the most raw and heartbreaking laments, which is often what happens when it's too late. We hear the words we need to hear. We say the words we need to say when it's too late. How often have we said, I wish I could have said this to that person one more time. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, 
my son. Absalom needed that before he passed away. And I'm sure David probably rationalized his relationship with his kids like, you know what, I work hard. I'm just trying to provide for them. You know, that's why I'm gone all the time is because I want to set their future up. And he probably, what they probably just wanted from him was for them, for him to be their dad. And for many of you, you know that experience. See, before our kids can get a gospel message from us, they need to see the gospel modeled. They need to see it lived out in relationship because only through that will it build trust for our kids to receive the message of the gospel. And it starts early. How do kids learn that you love them? It's not by being like, son, I'm Mr. Castello. I love you very much. My daughter, I love you. I'm, I miss, it's like, no, it's, you, you hug them. You, you snuggle them. You read to them. You spend time with them. We're, we're with them. That's why our kids' ministry, we, we don't catechize two-year-olds. We, we, we'll have kids' ministry again one day, I promise. Um, thank you, COVID. And uh, we, we gather together and we create a, a loving environment for our little ones so they can see the love of God model as we prepare to tell them about the love of God. It takes real attention. It takes patience. It, talk, it takes talking about stuff that you're not really interested in so you can get to the stuff that you are interested in. At least a real conversation. And this doesn't start at 16 or 24. And if that's the type of relationship that you have with your kids, God can repair that, but it's just not the same. We, we have to see the God, gospel modeled in relationship because our kids will rebel. They will push back and they'll always be asking the question, do you still love me? Will you still be there? Am I safe here with you? And so we talk all the time about creating a gospel culture in our church. We have to create gospel cultures in our families. We have to create a culture where the gospel is not just spoken, but it's lived out. And David missed this incredibly. He failed to show the grace that he had received from God to his own kids. And so a great question for us to ask and really apply to any area of our life is how does the gospel speak into this? How does the fact that I've been forgiven by Jesus impact how I raise kids or when I have kids or, or any relationship? And we can train ourselves to think this way because we can ask ourselves this, how has God treated me? How has he received me? He's done so with open arms. Compare David to the prodigal son when the prodigal came back and the father ran out and met him and gave him things he did not deserve. That is how we are called to model the gospel to others. Maybe you're not a parent, but how do, you, how do you take that same principle and say, how does the gospel shape my friendships? How does the gospel shape my work? How does the gospel shape where I live and what I do? We have to remember that we, to God, are the rebellious child, and yet he receives us by his grace. We have to embody that love. Thirdly, children repeat and reflect their parents' sins. Kids are like a mirror, but they're not like a regular mirror. They're like a funhouse mirror, and they exaggerate everything about your failures and your struggles and your flaws. It's like when your kid says that word and you're like, I don't know where they learned that from. We know where they learned that from. It's, it, it, they, they magnify and repeat our mistakes and our worst traits. We see this in David. David had a, a ton of wives and a ton of concubines. Solomon knocked it out of the park. He had 300 wives and 1,000 concubines. 
David multiplied his own father issues. Je- he was Jesse's least favorite son. And that story we tackled at the beginning of the series, when, when Samuel comes to town trying to find a new king, Jesse's like, oh yeah, there's David. He forgot about him. I'm sure there were some dad issues. So is, is it surprising that David was cold and uncomfortable with his kids? No. We are partially a product of our environment. You take a person with a bent towards sin and you put them in a house with sinners, it does, it's not surprising that we're prone to the same sins and shortcomings. And so we shape our kids because we've been shaped by our parents. The best advice I can give when it comes to this is become the person that you want your kids to be. Now, as I say that, that's either a crushing weight or it's freeing news. It's a crushing weight if you think you've got to do better than your parents did. For me, like my dad, he, had, he left my mom when I was 12. He was, he was a serial adulterer. My grandfather did the same. I'm not sure about my, history, my family history before that, but it wouldn't be surprising if that was in our family line. And I told my wife, I'm going to break that curse. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to do this. And some of those free news she said to me is, you don't have to because Jesus already did. You don't have to do this because Jesus already did, because who you're imitating is not a better version of yourself. It's 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If I want my kids to become the person I want them to be, I have to be a person sold out to following Jesus. If I want my neighbors to love Jesus, I have to be sold out to following Jesus. The best gift that you can give any relationship is your growing relationship with the Lord. The best gift you can give your kids, the best gift you can give your future spouse or your friends or your neighbors. So here's the question, is your life worthy of imitating? Ask somebody in in your life who's close to you, how how do you receive me? What's it like to, to be around me? How, how do you see God at work in my life? This is why we want you to be in a community group. If you're not in one, just fill out the connect card or see somebody in the back before you leave. It might be painful to hear their answers, but it helps us grow. Others, particularly your, your kids, see what you value. If the first thing that drops is the church, the first thing that's going to drop in your kid's life is the church. If the first thing that drops is Bible study and prayer when you get busy, your kids aren't going to value the Bible. If sports trump your relationship with Jesus and coming and gathering with God's people, your kids are going to do the exact same thing. And the thing is, is your neighbors also watch it too. You have to model it. Lastly, as we wrap up, children need more than you. Look, my kids need more than me and Amy. I I am not enough for them. I can never provide enough emotional stimulus. I can never provide enough intellectual stimulus. I can never provide enough Bible study. They need you. They need the church. My girls need you. And some of you are already pouring into my girls' lives. And thank you for that. Some of you are going to do so and disciple them in ways I don't even know about yet that I wouldn't be able to. And so if you're not a parent yet, or maybe you're single and maybe, maybe you're never going to have kids, you play an incredible role. You're like a surrogate aunt and uncle. You, you play an incredible role. Not, it could be in youth ministry. It could be in kids ministry. It could be mentoring. It could be friendship. It could be over the dinner table. You play an incredible role in the lives of the kids in this church. But more than that, my, our kids need Jesus. They need parents who love Jesus. 
Parents who understand that their worth isn't, doesn't come from having great kids, but it comes from what, how Jesus sees them, and we point our kids, kids to them. Look, you could blow it as a parent. You could absolutely blow it as a parent, and God still loves you. And sometimes God works in our kids in spite of us. Sometimes you can do all the right things and you can raise your kids to love Jesus and they still walk away from him. You could do all the right things and your kids grow up to hate you or you lose a child or they fall into horrendous sin or make terrible choices. But just like David, there's grace for us. There's grace for us who are trying to be parents and we feel like we're really struggling at it. There's grace for those of us who long to be parents but haven't yet seen God open that door. There's grace for us who are unpacking the baggage of our childhood because here's what God did. God gave his very son so that we could be a part of his family, so that we could find a good father who loves us and will never leave us and never forsake us. Look, David blew it, but his descendant Jesus didn't. And so what's your next step when it comes to being a part of this family? Is it embodying the gospel for others? Is it maybe letting go and trusting God? Is it it investing in in somebody else in in this church? Or maybe for you, that next step is to enter into God's family, to have a new relationship with Jesus, to trust him for salvation. Let's pray.